The AMA Moving Medicine podcast highlights innovation and emerging issues that impact physicians and patients today. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's Moving Medicine video and podcast. Today, we're talking about teen mental health issues and how they've been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm joined today by Dr. Sandra DeYoung, a child and adolescent psychiatrist in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who's also secretary of the American Psychiatric Association Board of Trustees. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Dr. DeYoung, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, in the fall of 2021, several associations declared a national emergency in child and adolescent mental health. And later in December, the U.S. Surgeon General and Rare Public Advisory warned of a, quote, devastating mental health crisis among American teens. Let's just start out today with a little context. Have you ever seen anything like this happen before? And, and, and what exactly does this mean? Are we still in this emergency situation right now with teens and mental health? Yeah, so it, it really is unprecedented in my experience to have both this emergency declaration and the Surgeon General's advisory. And I think it really is because the situation itself is unprecedented. So what makes it an emergency? We have um, much higher rates of things like anxiety, depression, suicide. But it's also uh, really uh, the impact of the psychosocial uh, effects of COVID. So things like uh, teenagers confronting illness and death, family stress due to unemployment and financial pressures, um, increased rates of domestic violence, increased the use of, uh, of parental substance abuse. Um, at the same time, kids have been out of school, fewer adults monitoring them, schools have been closed. And we have to remember that Lots of kids around this country get food from school, uh, get mental health services from school. They've been cut off from their peers, which is critical for youth to develop that sense of identity, which this stage is really all about. Um, academic skill loss has been a factor, disengagement from school, and really just lots of loss of structure and routine. And we really don't know what the effect of this is going to be over time. We think that vulnerable youth are going to be more at risk, those who are already um, at risk. Uh, but really, I think we have to think about this as a whole generation at potentially increased risk. Wow. Uh, no shortage of drivers uh, from that list you just gave. Do you, you know, when you look at where we are right now, what do you see as the biggest risks to adolescents today? And has this shifted over time? Yeah, you know, I think things are getting better. Schools are mostly back in person, uh, but there's a lot of uncertainty as to what life will look like in terms of schools and healthcare and all of that. Um, and we still still have a really, uh, for example, in my clinic, my hospital clinic has the biggest waiting list we've ever had. So things still feel pretty tough in the mental health arena. I think the the, 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 this persistent high stress and loss at this key stage of development is, is likely to have long-term sequelae. It may even have epigenetic impacts, you know, on brain development, and we will have to, and to get passed over succeeding uh, generations. So there's a lot going on with this. And then it's been compounded by other kinds of psychosocial stressors. So um, certainly uh, what's been going on with climate change and the impact of that on youth, the um, activity around systemic racism, and that has, has, so there's a sense of youth having been really burdened 
Uh, and I think while they've realized that, you know, things like vaccinations and antiviral medications can help take care of the physical symptoms of COVID, the mental health and the social emotional impacts have been much harder to, to break free from. That is, I mean, a terrible amount of burden. Um, and the generational impact that you talk about is something serious. And I guess something we'll see play out when, when we talk often about different topics related to the pandemic, there's kind of a common thing, which is there was something that was already not great beforehand that was exacerbated by the pandemic. When you kind of take yourself back pre-pandemic, were you already seeing signs in your practice that uh, uh, teen mental health was on a decline or was, you know, seeing, were you seeing trouble spots before COVID hit? Yeah. So it, it's absolutely true, I think, that things were already in decline uh, and that COVID seems to have accelerated and exacerbated that decline. So um, I started outpatient practice in 2001. And at that time, we were already seeing um, the rates of anxiety, depression, suicide, substance use going up in this country. And, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about the cause of that, what role social media had, um, and so forth. But things were already getting worse. And, and I would also say that there was already back then, um, the, the system for, for youth mental health care was already struggling. Um, and I remember very vividly, you know, starting my practice and within a very short period of time, I had a six month wait list. So there's, this has been going on for some time. Yeah. So a real shortage on the physician end in this space. Absolutely. So we know, unfortunately, that we have a national crisis in terms of the shortage of child psychiatrists. We have only 14 per 100,000, uh, you know, 14 child psychiatrists per 100,000 youth in this country. Um, and about half of youth aren't able, aren't getting care for their mental health problem for those who need it. So um, big, big uh, access problem. Yep. Uh, Dr. DeYoung, with more teens struggling with mental issues, like you've outlined, and uh, you know, not offset whatsoever by the supply of actual folks that can help them, yeah, um, you know, is there is stigma still an issue uh, in this population or a barrier to getting teens asking for help or getting help? You know, it's interesting. In my experience, um, <clears throat> teens have in general, been much more open to talking about mental health concerns than have their, um, you know, the parental generation. And I actually think what's shifted is that adults are now more open to thinking about it. You know, everybody from Michelle Obama reporting that she was depressed to, you know, physicians themselves have been claiming their own mental health uh, concerns in public. And I think they are now more open to listening to what youth have been talking about for some time. I would just add to that, though, it's careful. I think it's important to recognize that there are certain groups for whom mental health issues still are highly stigmatized, and we really have to be particularly vigilant about those groups. Do you want to, do you want to talk specifically more about that? What well, so for example, we know that in Asian American communities, um, the idea of having a mental health problem and going and seeking mental health care is a huge source of shame potentially in their communities. Um, 
Uh, we, uh, in my clinic, work with a lot of uh, Haitian-American youth. And again, uh, it's really not part of their culture to get mental health care. So um, I think we, uh, there's, things are uh, overall getting better. And I think as the overall stigma decreases, hopefully it's likely to decrease for everybody. Um, but we do need to be sensitive to that issue. Medicine doesn't stand still, and neither do we. AMA members don't just keep up with medicine, they shape its future. Help move medicine, join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. Uh, like, with again, with so many things during the pandemic, data and having enough data uh, to, uh, to really guide decisions uh, has been really important in kind of catching up. It, when you look at this crisis, do you feel like we have enough data uh, for the profession as a whole to respond well? And if not, what questions still are yet to be answered? Yeah, you know, I have to say, when you look at uh, youth mental health data, it, in my opinion, it's it's just not as good as one would wish. Um, we have uh, data uh, that are based on surveys of self-report, for example, by parents and kids um, and, and, and sort of a lot of synthesis of that data. Um, but what we don't have is systemic data. Even when you compare systems of care across states, they use different terminology for the same kinds of services. And so trying to do comparisons is really quite tricky. We also don't have enough longitudinal data, so we really need to know uh, what is, what's been the impact and what will be the impact of COVID on youth over time. So that's gonna take you know, years of study and those kinds of large longitudinal um, studies are just difficult to do. And you know, I think we need to understand better where are the holes in our system of care. And I would love to know where are the communities where things have gone better than we might've predicted and what were they doing right? You know, what works? What what fosters resilience in communities and populations? I think that would. Have you heard anything to that effect that's promising? Well, I think there there are a lot of uh, efforts underway. I think the uh, what I'm seeing, which does really give me hope, is uh, an emphasis on community resilience and building up community systems of support, which I think is really going to be where the money is. Well, some uh, have said that the medical system hasn't been able to keep up with a lot of the changes, certainly, uh, you know, they come on hard and fast over the past two years. That's put a lot of pressure on emergency department physicians and pediatricians, kind of put them on the front lines of this particular crisis. What, what challenges uh, does this pose? And, you know, what do we do about that? Yeah, so... Um they they are in an incredibly difficult uh, situation and need our, our support. And really what we need, I think, is a system of care based on collaboration and consultation. So, uh, you know, ideally emergency physicians would have at least uh, one child psychiatrist they could call for a remote consultation. Uh, and uh, we need to be thinking much more about early intervention and prevention in these large communities. Um, because for sure, these you know folks aren't aren't uh, prepared to do it on their own. Having said that, I will say that sometimes um, catching a teen in a moment of crisis, like an emergency room physician does, for example, 
can be an incredibly important point of intervention and uh, picking up on depressive symptoms or a lack of engagement in school or a dysfunctional family at that point can really, and in a supportive empathic way, I think can really facilitate an entree uh, into the mental health system. And when you and think help. about the reality that we're in right now in this particular situation, what do, you, what do pediatricians and emergency medicine physicians need to know about treating teens with mental health issues and are any red flags uh, they may not be aware of? Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the tricky things is that um, adolescent depression can present quite differently from adult depression. Uh, so we know uh, youth can be uh, uh, eating more, sleeping more, and socially they can actually look quite okay. Parents often say they seem fine with their friends, but inside uh, they're quite withdrawn and they're really not feeling uh, plugged in uh, and they may be feeling very stuck. And those are all kind of red flags. Um, they can be quite irritable as well. So um, asking about all of those things, you really wanna know who does this you you know teenager feel connected to? Is there one adult in their life they feel connected to? Because that person can often um, really change the course. And sometimes that that's their pediatrician. Um, Absolutely, pedi pediatricians um, you know may have a direct line to parents. You know how should they be communicating to parents about issues like this? And can and should parents be playing a larger role? I, you know, it's critical. We, we talk in child psychiatry about family-centered care, and that's really the approach we want. No one individual can do this alone. It really needs to be a family system-centered uh, approach. And uh, the caveat, though, of course, is that teenagers are get very worried when doctors talk to their parents about their stuff, right? So we have to respect youth's autonomy and right to confidentiality, but we really want to push towards gently towards open communication and mutual support. I think owning this as a family rather than, you know, pointing fingers to any single individual struggling and just saying this has been a really tough time. Um, and I think, you know, pediatricians can help parents get the support they need and can also help them own their own areas of strength and resilience and help identify that in their kids. And then the whole family can feel stronger together. So I think it's an important approach. Well, it's a pretty distressing uh, situation and one with long-term implications. When you think about kind of where we are right now, you know, what are kind of the short-term solutions and maybe the longer-term ones that you think we need to prioritize to address uh, this crisis in the months ahead? Well, I think in the short term, we need to try to um, sort of uh, pivot to a more positive future looking stance. You know, we're not going to be in this forever. I mean, it's going to be part of a new normal, but we things are getting much better. Uh, I really encourage people to connect with others. That that was missing so much during COVID, and I think you know it's such a huge part of our um, our mental health to to feel connected and part of a greater whole. So I often refer people to you know community efforts or encourage them to have family events or get together with their friends, those kinds of things, as a way to sort of. Uh, pull together after this really challenging time. But, you know, look, I, it really youth mental health, child mental health, our system is kind of more like Swiss cheese than anything else. It's got a lot of holes in it. And 
I think we're going to need to uh, really look at um, ensuring that we have a system of care that isn't just about beds. I know we hear a lot about the, the boarding crisis and kids waiting for beds, but um, we really need to be looking at the community level, schools, uh, law enforcement, community organizations, up through primary care uh, to you know urgent access to care. So hopefully this new 988 hotline will be helpful. Uh, and, uh, and then looking at the more acute services live for care. But if we can get in early uh, to provide kids what they need, uh, I, I don't think we're gonna need as many hospital beds as we think. And that's, that's really critical because um, you know, we know there's no health without mental health and our youth really truly are our future. And we really do think they're at risk in ways that we are only just beginning to understand. And so we really need to be close and watchful and be there for them. Dr. Young, thank you so much for being here today. That's an incredible perspective and uh, shed uh, more light on a problem that is so incredibly serious. Uh, that wraps up today's episode. Uh, we'll be back with another Moving Medicine segment shortly. In the meantime, you can find all our videos and podcasts at ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thanks for joining us today. Please take care. This has been Moving Medicine a podcast by the American Medical Association. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine.